Bokshi. Recorded live. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. changed hey good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio for friday october 22nd 2010 this week episode 184 comes to you from studio c in beautiful mckees rocks pennsylvania my name is joe hughes or radio joe and here with me in the studio is the z-man cliff zlotnick hey good afternoon joe good day cliff at the controls again this week is our new engineer austin powers to introduce Myself. My name is Austin Danger Powers. Danger is my middle name. Good day, Austin. Today's segments include the IAQ Radio trivia question, an interview with David Governo and Dr. Howard Sandler, our halftime with Dr. Dietrich Wow joining us as our technical guest, and the roundup. We've been updating and adding a blog for the IAQ Radio website every week after the show. Check out Cliff's blog at iaqradio.com. I've also been sending a link to the blog along with our weekly show announcement. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, looks like people know how to contact the show. We've got a nice live crew on here today. You can also call 724-444-7444. Our show ID is 1547. Of course, you know you can download the show at iaqradio.com. Just follow the link that says go to the show for downloads or stream live right off our website. And, of course, you can download from iTunes. Don't forget, we also have those ABIH certification maintenance points, IICRC, continuing education credits, and ACAC renewal credits. Just email me and request a quiz at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Our email addresses are also on the homepage of IAQ Radio. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Hey, 
Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IEQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IEQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Email it to cslotnick at cs.com. Or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in your answer off your computer. Congratulations. To Andy Krasowski, Comcast Metal Products in Mars, Pennsylvania, for answering last week's trivia question by identifying green or sustainable building as the practice of creating and using healthier and more resource-efficient models of construction, renovation, operation, maintenance, and demolition. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, October 22, 2010 has been sponsored by Cochrane & Associates, the indoor air quality industry's dedicated marketing and public relations firm. Cochrane & Associates has created IQ TV, the IQ Video Network, the industry's portal for news and information related to indoor air quality issues. IQ TV is the place to be. Visit them at iqtv.com. Now for this week's trivia question. Name the United States federal agency responsible for conducting research and making recommendations for the prevention of work-related injury and illness. Back to you, Joe. Okay, thanks. Cliff, let's uh, start with David Governo. He is the managing partner of the Governo Law Firm, LLC, in Boston, Massachusetts. He specializes in defense of complex litigation. He's a member of numerous bar and trade associations, including ASHRAE, the ACGIH, the American Society for Testing Materials, the Environmental Information Association, the Indoor Air Quality Association, and the Restoration Industry Association. He also serves on the editorial board of Indoor Environment Connections. Mr. Governor has tried many types of cases and several years ago successfully defended the first mold case tried in Rhode Island. He has been voted a New England super lawyer for many years and has achieved Martindale Hubble's highest rating. Mr. Governor also serves as the chairman of the Board of Healthy Housing Solutions, a subsidiary of the National Center for Healthy Housing. He's been a guest twice now on the show, and we appreciate him coming back. Howard M. Sandler, M.D., is a physician specializing in occupational and environmental medicine. He has served as a medical officer with the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, NIOSH, a consultant to the U.S. OSHA and U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, and has been an invited presenter on occupational health causation for the National Academy of Sciences. He has also testified on request before the U.S. Congress and state legislators on occupational health issues, including microbials. Dr. Sandler has taught, lectured, and written extensively on occupational health issues, including indoor air quality, and has provided testimony to the U.S. OSHA on its proposed IEQ standard. He has presently serves on the American Industrial Hygiene Association's 
IEQ task force focusing on microbial aspects of indoor environmental quality. Okay, let's see if we got our test. There's a man I found could bring us all joy. There's a doctor I found could cure the boy. A doctor I found could cure the boy. There's a man I found could remove his sorrow. He lives in this town. Let's see him tomorrow. Let's see him tomorrow. All right, I think we've got both muted. David, do we have you on the line? Hello, David. Hey, good morning, Joe. Good morning, Cliff. Good morning. Welcome back. And Dr. Sandler, do we have you on the line? Yes. Good morning, gentlemen. Great. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Cliff, why don't you uh, start with the questioning there? Okay. Um, David. Um, Yes. Okay. Let's see. Cliff lost his notes. I got one here. Go ahead. Go ahead. When you're defending medical causation with respect to uh, microbiological claims, what's what's the attorney's role in, in, with respect to those types of defense claims, David? Well, in defending a claim that someone is ill because of uh, mold exposure, the, the first place we would start would be to look at that person's expert to see what he or she is saying um, caused the problem and what problem that uh, environmental exposure was uh, allegedly caused. Uh, in, in the law, everybody, well, a lot of people have heard about the legal standard for medical testimony and any kind of scientific testimony, usually called Daubert, which is the, the judge acts as a gatekeeper to uh, keep medical testimony that isn't scientifically valid or reliable out of evidence. Um, the thought there is that, you know, the, the jury should not be listening to a, a doctor or other um, so-called expert te- testify about things that are, are invalid because the expert has a certain amount of prestige and sway with the jury that uh, the judge needs to uh, have a hand in moderating. What, what we look for is what is the expert's opinion? What What is the problem that the expert says was caused? And what's the basis for that opinion? What was the environmental testing? Uh, for how long was the person in that setting? And things like what other types of exposures or medical conditions could explain the symptoms that the person's complaining about. We do, it's uh, equivalent to a mini uh, CSI investigation, I think you could you could say. Okay. Cliff? I think what we'd like to do is ask Dr. Sandler the, the same question. If you're acting as an expert in a medical causation uh, microbiological claim, what would your role be? Uh, hi, this is Dr. Sandler. Uh, my role typically uh, is the same role whether I'm uh, examining uh, somebody clinically or whether I am uh, being involved in litigation or workers' compensation or doing an investigation for government agencies or independent companies, and that is to assess the science and the facts that are involved in an individual problem area. For example, what is the exposure? When did the exposure occur? What's the exposure level to exactly what uh, are, has someone been exposed? then determine if there is what we call general causation 
previously established. That is, does an exposure to a given microbiological agent or uh, component have the ability to cause a specific disease entity? Once you have those together, then you try to do what we call a dose-response analysis. Is, in fact, the dose that the person exposed was exposed to or received sufficient to cause a problem? And last but least, not least, uh, are other more likely explanations for that person's problem uh, existing? And do those uh, specific problems uh account for the current condition, or is this, in fact, due to a microbial uh, exposure? Dr. Sandler, what, with respect to mold exposure, we, we mentioned that, and that's oftentimes what we see with respect to these types of lawsuits. Do you feel that there are health effects, health effects that can be attributed to mold exposure, or do you feel that they are oftentimes exaggerated? I guess that's two questions. Well, I guess the first question is, uh, do does mold exposure cause problems? And the answer is yes. Uh, we do know people who have asthma uh, that is, can be mold-mediated. Uh, we also see people with allergic rhinitis, commonly known as hay fever, which also can be uh, mold-mediated. The issue, though, is under what conditions and which molds or which mold factors uh, can such conditions, uh, medical conditions, be caused? Uh, is it from indoor air mold growth? Uh, is it from outside mold growth? Uh, what is the exposure level necessary to have that? Do people who, quote-unquote, have atopic tendencies, meaning the tendency to develop allergies or asthma, are they the ones that are only at risk? So there's a lot of different uh, questions that have to be answered, but certainly uh, various conditions uh, within the indoor environment uh, may either uh, contribute to, cause, or aggravate underlying asthma or allergies. Sometimes, however, I think that um, certain conditions or certain complaints, quote-unquote, are overemphasized, uh, not necessarily exaggerated, but, but people are concerned about their health complaints these days, and there's always a, a concern of whether these health complaints can be the result of environmental or occupational exposures. Uh, certain types of uh, complaints, for example, neurotoxic complaints, meaning that they have uh, concerns that, for example, certain mycotoxins that can be produced by probably over 350 different species of uh, mold uh, can produce uh, various types of headaches, dizziness, uh, loss of uh, memory, and a variety of other types of, of neurotoxic effects that can be measured uh, through various uh, neuropsychometric test batteries uh, are related to mold exposure. And the bottom line is that, that there really is very little evidence, if any, that such uh, neurotoxic effects can cause can be caused by mold exposure, especially from an indoor air quality standpoint. Um, as a follow-up question, Dr. Sandler, we had um, Dr. Richie Shoemaker and the uh, on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he asserted uh, an interesting position. And what his position was is that in that experts uh, or opposing experts must treat patients with the alleged affliction, uh, you know, to be a legitimate expert. You know, would you agree on that? Well, uh, I know who Dr. Shoemaker is, and I have been on. 
the opposite side of uh, several pieces of litigation uh, where I've been an expert and he's also been an expert. Um, I think we have to be very careful when we try to limit people's credentials or qualifications to provide testimony uh, to supposedly those who, quote, treat them. Uh, Dr. Shoemaker um, recently produced a uh, something called a research committee report on the diagnosis and treatment of chronic inflammatory response syndrome. Uh, and within that uh, report, uh, reiterated the same uh, requirement that you asked me just a couple seconds ago. And I don't think that that you can, quote, limit the information that can be provided to finders of fact or uh, scientific committees or government agencies or, or the patient themselves uh, just by the treater. Uh, that would, for example, negate all types of people who bring many different points of view. For example, epidemiologists or toxicologists or uh, industrial hygienists or various specialists such as uh, uh, allergists or immunologists or others who uh, can provide certain types of information. Uh, so I, I'm really not sure exactly what he's trying to say by that. Uh, if, if indeed he's saying that if you're not a treater, then you don't have an opinion, then I certainly would have to uh, have continue to have my differences with Dr. Shoemaker on that type of, uh, of concern. I don't know that he, I, I don't recall exactly how it was stated. I don't think he necessarily said you, you shouldn't be able to testify. I think he was just kind of pointing out that, you know, as someone who treats these people, he sees these people on a regular basis, that um, he is uh, currently working with a lot of these people and he's you know currently staying on top of the research for these people and i'm just curious david if we could go back to you for a moment do you think having an expert like that as opposed to someone who doesn't necessarily treat folks with you know mold related uh symptoms does that lend more weight to the case sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't in, in, from a legal perspective, the admissibility of, of a particular or the, the acceptance of an expert as a qualified expert to give an opinion is not necessarily based upon any one particular thing. It's not based upon a person's credentials. It's not based upon a person's experience. The judge will look at the experts, what the expert has to bring to the table, and basically answer the question, is that expert capable of giving the jury information that a jury as lay people cannot get for themselves or figure out for themselves? Uh, often, someone who is, is you know, involved hands-on in uh, a particular uh, trade or um, avocation will have more weight with that jury because they do that type of work day in and day out. But the bottom line is whether or not that expert's opinion is credible, whether it makes sense to the jury, whether it makes common sense, and whether it makes scientific sense. And uh, the fact that someone has been uh, uh, treating uh, patients uh, does not really necessarily make them an expert in the field. It makes them uh, someone who's treated, expert, uh, treated pa patients. And whether or not that person's 
opinions about how the treatment should be uh, made or what the source of the problems that the people are complaining about, that has to do with uh, whether the jury will accept that expert's common sense and whether there's scientific basis for the expert's opinion in that particular case. David, we you know we had uh, Melinda Ballard on the same show, and most of our listeners are familiar with her and her case, that landmark Mark case that um, initially had a $32 million judgment but then was obviously appealed and appealed again to the Supreme Court, and now we don't know exactly what happened. But that's not really what I'm leading to. What I'm leading to is that in her case, the health effects, as I understand it, were not admitted, and there was still a rather large judgment. Has there been a change with respect to seeing health effects that are alleged to have occurred from living in a damp indoor space or being exposed to mold being admitted more often lately than they have been in the past? Okay. The, the, um, I, I think what your, your point is the, whether the judge allowed testimony, expert testimony about the, the alleged health effects of the mold exposure into evidence. And that, that still is a, a mixed bag in terms of admissibility. It depends upon what the health effects are, what the mold conditions are, who the judge is, and a whole lot of things. Uh, I, I think what we've seen historically since uh, uh, Melinda Ballard's case has been a, cha- a lot of changes, not the least of which has been the revision of the insurance policies to uh, preclude or limit uh, insurance coverage for mold claims. And what that ended up doing is, is sort of rebalancing the market economy in, in terms of this whole area of litigation. So that instead of playing with other people's money, people had to make decisions about whether they would clean things up or whether there was really a problem based upon their own money. And that, that changed the dynamic dramatically. And it, it reduced the litigation to uh, you know, exponentially to a point now where we see mold claims, we see valid mold claims. Um, sometimes we have cases where the, the symptoms are attributed to mold and that, that medical opinion gets admitted. The, the mold case that I tried in Rhode Island several years ago, Dr. Shoemaker was on the other side. We argued that his opinion should be excluded. The judge did not believe us. Dr. Shoemaker got to give his opinions in that case. Um, he, his opinion did not prevail. They didn't sway the jury, and, and the defense won in the end, but uh, they were still admitted. Cliff, David, um, well, I guess let's clear up a couple of things first. If I'm not mistaken, the reason that Melinda Ballard prevailed on her case wasn't because of toxic mold, but because of bad faith with her insurance company. She was able to prove that they lied to her, uh, et cetera. Is that correct? I, I don't know enough about the facts to say that it's true that they lied to her and all that. But I do, I will agree that that really was an insurance uh, case as opposed to a mold case. The fundamental foundation for the, the insurance claim was a mold claim, but it what it did was uh, show how the insurance uh, claim handling practice can lead to some serious liability on the part of the insurance company if they're not careful about how they do it. Um, and, and I think that has changed the way some insurance companies handle mold and other types of, of environmental claims. 
uh, for the better. Well, what I'd like to do is ask a follow-up question. When an insurance company denies a claim based upon pollution and contamination, does that constitute bad faith? And they seem to do it pretty often, and they seem to do it on things that would not be considered hazardous materials such as asbestos and so on and so forth, but they seem to deny a lot of claims on on what seems to be a use of the pollution and contamination exclusion uh, other than in the manner in which it was intended. Well, it, that, that's a, a very big and complicated question, actually, even though it's relatively short. The, the, the situation is that, that the insurance policies provide coverage and they provide limitations to that coverage, and the pollution exclusion is one of the big limitations. What you have is a lot of people who throw whatever against the wall to see if it'll stick. They'll make the insurance claim, hoping that the insurance company is going to allow the claim, but you know the insurance company looks at the policy, looks at the facts, and then makes a decision about whether that claim is covered or excluded. The the um, decision to exclude a claim because of a pollution exclusion clause becomes uh, bad faith when the insurance company does not either either have the factual basis for arguing that it's part of that exclusion or the legal basis. And so you really have to get down to the individual allegations, what is what is being claimed, and so forth. One of the things that is a sort of a, a sort of a prevailing principle of law here, though, is that because the insurance policy was drafted by the insurance company, any ambiguity in that policy will be construed against the insurance company. So if it's an unclear case, the policyholder wins. And, and that, that's just universal insurance law. So you have to you know, remember that a tie here, so, so to speak, goes to the policyholder, not the insurance company. Well, let's go back, and, and I can ask you something specific, and you can give me uh, a specific answer. You know, there's a lot of use of antimicrobials within the industry. These products are registered. Uh, in most states, the person doesn't need to be uh, a certified applicator in order to uh, apply them. Uh, so someone who is trained to apply the product following the label instructions applies uh, an EPA-registered antimicrobial in a home. Uh, the, the, the homeowner or occupant claims to get sick. Uh, they end up filing a claim, and when, this claim, and when the remediator goes to defend it, his insurance company uses the pollution exclusion to say he doesn't have coverage because uh, the plaintiff claimed that somehow the use of this product within their environment contaminated or polluted it. Yeah, the, I, I could tell after about four words of the question, Cliff, that this is not a question that I can answer. Okay. Uh, not, not, not without specific facts because it's very, it's dependent upon Who's the who holds the policy? What does the policy say? What state are you in? How does that state construe these policies? Okay. And and a whole bunch of other things that just uh, don't let me say, oh well, yeah, this insurance company is a bad actor here. You can't tell. They may be wrong and may be right. Okay, thank you, David. Doctor Sandler, I'm 
there was a recent report, I guess it was last year, 2000, maybe it was 2009, the World Health Organization came out with a report on damp buildings. I just wanted to see what your thoughts were on that report and uh, if you could let our listeners know if you thought it broke any new ground. I'm quite familiar with the World Health Organization report, as I am the Institute of Medicine report and several of the more recent uh, what we'll call review articles or or state-of-the-art assessments on this. I tend to agree with what the Institute of Medicine uh, from the National Academy of Sciences and others have written. Uh, I think the World Health Organization went a little further on this particular round, saying that they think there may be a close to enough evidence to call for a causal association and not a mere statistical association, but a possible causal association between uh, indoor air quality problems, especially uh, uh, moisture uh, damaged buildings, and the either development or exacerbation of asthma. Uh, I I did a very careful analysis of the underlying Articles, though the actual studies in which they uh, tried to advance that uh, claim a little bit more, and I still have some major questions uh, as to whether those studies can be used uh, to establish causation uh, in the way that the World Health Organization uh, attempted to uh, at least say that it was close to causation. Uh, outside of that, I feel very comfortable with the. Uh, continued findings of the of who meaning WHO as well as the Institute of Medicine and others that indeed there are certain things that can be caused by uh, or exacerbated by mold or what we'll call moisture or water damaged environments I'm and cu- go ahead I'm sorry oh, no I was just I didn't want to interrupt you go ahead if you had more yeah and that uh, they are limited but, but the vast majority of of health complaints that have been potentially associated has still not been validated at this point. I'm curious on, on the causal association, the the amount of evidence necessary to establish a causal association. Maybe we could use something that everybody is somewhat familiar with, and I think most people, just about anybody in the country, feels there has been a causal association established between cigarette smoking and lung cancer. Can, do you know off the top of your head how long ago that particular association was established, if so? Well, it depends on uh, – the, the answer to, to that question depends on a, a number of different facets, and, and that is uh, th- there is no, quote, specific causal criteria that have been established for use uh, – and accepted by the scientific community that you need exactly these criteria and exactly these amounts before you have causation. I, I certainly think that we can say in the 50s that there was certain suspicions of a causal connection between lung cancer and uh, cigarette smoking. However, I, I think by the 60s, certainly uh, that was a firmer basis for a causal relationship had been established. Uh, A lot of that depends on what we call epidemiological studies, and that means how much uh, evidence has been provided by studies in humans that are of the right type of study, meaning what we call a cohort or a longitudinal study on a a large group of individuals, 
that clearly can account for specific exposures, this precise disease, in this case meaning lung cancer, as well as the adequacy of the statistical analysis to say, yeah, this is large enough study that we see a clear and convincing uh, correlation between the two. Uh, there's a dose-response pattern, typically, that is established when you're looking along those lines. So there are a number of, of criteria or factors that we can use in establishing causation. I think the key, uh, or probably one of the most often cited uh, causal assessment uh, articles, is one by Sir Bradford Hill, published in 1965, based on a key mark or landmark address that he gave to a group of epidemiologists, in which he outlined roughly eight factors that should be considered. Uh, even today, uh, we don't have NIOSH or OSHA or EPA or even the uh, International Agency for Research on Cancer or the National Toxicology Program uh, allow, having set one specific methodology for establishing causation. It's still a little bit of an art. Uh, I think we're moving more and more towards that. I know I lecture on that periodically. Uh, so I, I think we have to be careful. But one, one of the key things in this particular area is, for example, when you brought up Dr. Shoemaker, uh, Dr. Shoemaker's latest uh, July 27, 2010 uh, report for the, that is, I think, was, was developed, uh, it appears in conjunction with the policyholders of America, is on something called chronic inflammatory response syndrome, which is a brand new diagnosis that really is not in the usual lexicon of diagnoses. If you check the International Classification of Diseases, 10th edition, the most current one, you won't find that listed there. And that's something that Dr. Shoemaker came up with on his own, as well as the specific diagnostic test for how you uh, uh, make, would make such a diagnosis, even if this syndrome does exist. Uh, and that's part of the problem in causation is that you, you have to be very clear exactly what, ex what you're measuring for exposure over what periods of time, how you eliminated other particular more likely alternative causes, and do you have tried and true what we'll call validated uh, diagnostic test criteria to, in fact, make that diagnosis. All those things are very important to answer your question for establishing a true causal relationship. Thank you. I, that helps me a lot in clearing that up. And I, I, I'd like to, after halftime, ask you about another issue with respect to causal relationships, and that's lead-based paint, since that's a significant media and regulatory issue at this point in time. But we've got to take a short break for our halftime, thank our sponsors, and I think we're going to have to hold off and bring Dr. Wow in on the roundup because uh, we're running a little short on time and things are going well. Hold on one moment, gentlemen. We'll be right back. We'd like to thank our association sponsor, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. 
And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon, J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Okay, let's go back to our second half and uh, go back to our guests, uh, David Governor and Dr. Howard Sandler. Dr. Sandler, before the break, we were talking a little bit about causal association. And I don't want to just spend the whole hour on, on mold and dampness. So I'd, I'd like to ask, um, and I'm not, I didn't get a chance to ask you before the show how familiar you are with the issue, but um, how, you know, what types of causal associations exist with respect to ingestion of lead-based paint, uh, dust from lead-based paint, and children? Uh, lead-based, well, lead in general is certainly a toxic agent. And depending on the dose and the age and the route of exposure, uh, you can, in fact, have a variety of different effects from lead-based paint. If we limit ourselves to childhood lead-based paint uh, exposures, uh, certainly we know that children uh, who are exposed to uh, large amounts of lead uh, can get very sick, including uh, die from uh, overdoses of lead. The question, I think, comes more of what types of particular uh, concerns uh, or effects from lead exposure in children occur at very low levels, levels below, well below which used to occur uh, or be the average level in the United States. For example, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the average blood lead level in the United States was somewhere, especially in urban areas, around the 20s or even low 30s. We're now down to two. And the question still becomes, well, do we see neurocognitive development problems or delays or neurobehavioral problems in children with very low blood lead levels? And that's still an area of controversy. Certainly there's a, a number of studies which purport to show that, in fact, that exists. However, at this point in time, uh, there's still certain uh, uh, problems with the data. One would... would wonder why when we've had a 90% reduction in the average blood lead level that children, if indeed lead is a big, uh, has a big effect on academic performance, for example, uh, why, don't, uh, why aren't kids doing a lot better if, if indeed lead was a, one of the primary causes of that particular types of problems? I currently am working on a case involving uh, ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and there's not real... Uh, good confirmation of an association between low-level lead exposure and ADHD. Okay, I've got a question for David. David, what new trends and tactics and strategies do you see opposition using in microbial claims, and how do you go about countering these efforts? Okay. Can I, can I say something about lead? Please, please. First, next week is the uh, U.S. Senate has declared it the uh, National Lead Poisoning Prevention Week, so everybody should know that. And I, I happen to be giving a presentation on lead at a legal conference on Tuesday on 
the whole issue of neuropsychological testing and experts and uh, lead poisoning. So I've I've just recently looked at that at that topic, and you know, Dr. Sandler hit the nail on the head in terms of uh, uh, the issue being one of of uh, uh, sort of how low can you get this lead level, and uh, you know how much how many different ways can you look at the uh, the studies and restudy it. Uh, to find uh, supposed health effects at levels that are just a small fraction of what you and I and everybody else in the, our age group grew up uh, with, uh, you know, and maybe that, and some more. So lead is lead is, uh, is certainly a big issue, um, and and this uh, renovation uh, rule that the, the government has just come out has, has been a political hot potato for many people involved because the, the question is how 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 necessary are all of these protective tests and uh, protective steps that cost a lot of money. Um, but back to your question, Cliff, on the, what kind of uh, tactics and, and strategies do we see in the microbial claims? I think the biggest tactic or strategy would be not filing the frivolous claims that we used to see all the time for um, you know, supposed mold effects that, uh, you know, uh, probably related to something else. The symptoms that people complain about typically from mold exposure are very common symptoms that are uh, caused by a whole bunch of different things. And to attribute it to mold is, is uh, you know, a, a, a difficult scientific uh, proof to make. And that's why a lot of the mold cases failed in terms of the causation testimony being admitted because there was not enough uh, you know, uh, scientific weight behind these opinions to allow the judges to, to uh, admit the evidence in, in trial. So I think we see a lot fewer mold cases. We see some, uh, you know, a lot of property damage mold cases, which are fairly straightforward. But the personal injury mold cases, we, we see them uh, less frequently and we see them generally being made for less uh, dramatic effects. You know, the, the case that I was involved in in Rhode Island was a, a claim for a permanent brain injury from mold exposure. And, uh, you know, if that person was making a claim for a, a transient, transient um, allergic response, then, then she might have won the case. But uh, to, to claim a permanent problem is a different deal. So those are the major differences I see. More selective on cases and less aggressive in terms of uh, what they're claiming. I'd like to throw out a, a topic for both of you to get, give us a, your perspective on, one from the legal side, one from the medical side, and that's this uh, corrosive drywall issue. Some people call it Chinese drywall. And I'm curious, I guess we'll start with Dr. Sandler. What so far has been the evidence, if any, that this is causing health effects, and what are your thoughts on the issue? Well, I appreciate the question. As a matter of fact, I got involved in the Chinese drywall cases a number of years ago. One of my closest friends is an ophthalmologist who has a house in Florida that uh, he did, in fact, have a strange odor, and it took a while for us to figure it out. Uh, we actually got in there before all this hit the, quote, hit the fan and were able to find that it indeed, in his particular house, it was uh, a brominated compound, not just the sulfur compound. So there are, are a variety of other uh, concerns from 
numerous Chinese products about contamination with, with things. This ranges from toys as well as drywall and other things. And so one has to be very careful when you import that you know that you're getting purity and that this is, in fact, having a uh, large impact on United States importers of goods produced in foreign countries. As far as a health effect standpoint, though, uh, to date, we really haven't seen any true correlations between uh, actual health effects and uh, the, quote, liberation of the uh, sulfur-mated compounds. Certainly there's been damage, there's been odor, there's been a variety of other, uh, when I say damage, I mean structural damage to home uh, components, especially uh, certain metals. But as far as the health goes, we, we just haven't seen it. And so I'm hoping that continues to be the way because no one wants to have anybody injured. Okay. David? Yes. The question being, what do I think about the, the Chinese drywall claims? Yes. Yes. Well, they're, they're, they're very valid um, in, in some cases, property damage claims. The, the um, solution to the problem is uh, basically gutting the house. It's, it's an unfortunate, uh, unfortunately expensive um, uh, problem, and uh, you know, but that's that's basically the bottom line. You know, you know, kind of uh, building on that, that you know, in these situations, we're able to prove that this material is hazardous or this material is defective because of these consequences that occur with it. And, you know, in the United States, manufacturers of drywall for years have been using cardboard to make the drywall. Knowing what happens when that cardboard gets wet and stays wet. So, I'm, you know, if this Chinese drywall is a product's liability issue, why isn't regular drywall that gets wet and mold grows on it a product liability issue? Well... It- I, I see where you're going there, Cliff, because the, typically, traditionally, for decades, drywall has been manufactured with a paper-based facing. And, you know, it was only recently, you know, after, say, the 70s, when houses got tighter and things got really developed, you know, the, the, um, there were problems with the Facing of the drywall getting wet, that we saw the mold claims and et cetera. And I understand that there's a new technology involved to put fiberglass or some you know, non-cellulose-based facing on on the drywall, and and you always get into sort of a conundrum when you have a, a new products, particularly building products, suggested and placed into the marketplace because. The, the first time, you know, some company is uh, selling fiberglass-faced drywall that can be wet and then allowed to dry out and not support mold growth, does that automatically make all of the other uh, drywall um, uh, somehow defective? I don't think so, because there could be, pro- first off, there could be problems that we don't anticipate yet uh, associated with the fiberglass-faced uh, dry, uh, drywall. So, you know, you're going to have increased cost, maybe some difficulty in, in surfacing that drywall, et cetera. So it's not an automatic thing. Products develop over time um, based upon the technology and the market. And certainly 
one of the things that everyone knows is that cellulose-based drywall supports mold growth if it gets wet. So it doesn't mean that it's inherently defective to use it. It means that when somebody goes to use it, they better know that that's a problem and maybe take steps to make sure it doesn't get wet by you know, making sure that they control the moisture. I've got a question for, for both of you. I get, I'd like to see if you could both give me some feedback on this case that occurred in Philadelphia in a public housing authority. Dr. Sandler, I, I wasn't sure. I, I will listen to the show again because, you know, we're trying to do several things at once here. But I know you mentioned dampness and damp buildings and, and mold even, at least exacerbating asthma. I'm curious if, if you also agree or feel that it can cause asthma? That's an interesting question. Clearly, we know that some people have asthma that's allergically mediated, meaning that common environmental allergens, whether it be dust mites or uh, certain pollens or uh, grasses, uh, as well as molds and even foods, uh, can cause uh, an allergic form of asthma. The, the question becomes, is there adequate exposure in most indoor air quality con- areas of concern, meaning buildings with mold, that I- in fact it uh, could cause uh, asthma? Uh, I think most of the, the literature addresses the potential for damp indoor environments to potentially cause or aggravate asthma or allergies, uh, but there's really very little bit of data out there. There's very little data out there uh, of, a, of what I would consider a, a helpful nature from a causation standpoint to show that mold itself in an indoor air quality basis will cause uh, mold-related asthma. Uh, I, I think it's certainly conceivable, for example, if there's enough indoor mold uh, available to be airborne that one potentially could become sensitized but it it's a fairly rare event for example if one looks at the amount of mold in the average silo in a, in a grain silo for example it's huge in comparison to the mold in an average home that might have some mold growing there and we don't see a huge breakout or outbreak i should say of mold-related asthma in populations who work along those lines. Certainly we do see some, but it's, if you're looking at the dose response, it's far and away, and, and so it kind of br- brings you some security or assurance that, no, we're not seeing a particularly uh, problematic area along those lines. Is it possible? It may well be, but it's certainly not prevalent. Is there more of a chance with, uh, I happen to be working on a project or I was, I'm no longer, but um, where there was some pretty significant mold contamination in a large apartment complex, and there are a lot of very young children. These are anywhere from infants to, you know, 18, 20 years old. Is there, do you feel that there's more of a likelihood that it could cause asthma for these very young children? Uh, That's always a question of concern because the developing organism, so to speak, or children, uh, can indeed uh, be of concern for be, because of a variety of reasons. Uh, the immune system, as it develops, can go down two different lines uh, uh, according to certain T cells. And 
one of those lines is more associated with allergy. Uh, there's a, a number of hypotheses out there right now that say that people who live in too clean environments are more likely to become allergic sufferers than people who grow up, quote, in the normal, you know, playing in a dirt environment, so to speak. Therefore, uh, while there is a, uh, a concern for children in the way they differentiate their immunological system, uh, there really isn't a whole lot of data out there to show, in fact, that uh, one tends to get uh, more uh, from indoor mold as a child. Uh, certainly, we, we see children with uh, more allergies and asthma. There's something called childhood asthma, if you will, but it's unclear exactly to what that type of uh, exposure could occur. The other issue is, are we talking about moisture-based buildings that where the moisture is just an indication of some other type of problem going on, or what we'll call a surrogate measure. For example, uh, is it the fact that you see more mice, or you see more cockroaches, or you see more, or you see other types of allergens? And it may just be the fact that certain types of buildings are not as well kept as others, and that may be indicative of something where there's water damage or uh, or increased moisture. That's absolutely the observation I had, too, on this particular project. There were multiple issues. I don't think anybody could tease it out and say that the mold caused this asthma. The, the child might have developed asthma anyway. It's a tough issue. David, and, then, and, and as well, one other thing that I should mention is that people are rarely allergic to just one thing. Usually atopic individuals have multiple allergies, and so it's often very times difficult, if not impossible, to figure out which continued exposure, which allergen is causing the clinical effects. David, with respect to that housing authority, the Philadelphia Housing Authority, I understand they settled for a large amount of money, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I believe it was because one of the occupants of one of these units, a child, had an asthma uh, attack, went to the hospital, and ended up on a significant, having significant health issues, and I believe may even be dependent on machines to stay, you know, to, to function normally at this point in their life. Can you give us a little update on where that is and what your thoughts are on that case? I I can tell you a little bit about that case from a sort of 35,000-foot view, because I, I was not involved in that case, and I, I don't know the specific facts. But what I can tell you that should factor into your analysis of that case is that my experience with uh, tort cases like the civil cases in Philadelphia per se? It's it's another Philadelphia juries are another world in the United States. There are uh, things called judicial hell holes, and the um, Philadelphia court system is is one that is very well known to award huge verdicts. Uh, many, many times more than the same case in a different place. And so often that will skew the settlement values of cases, and I suspect it had something to do with uh, the number that uh, this case ended up settling for. Okay. Gentlemen, we're going to go to what we call a roundup. We've only got about five minutes left, but we'd like to go around the horn and ask one last question. And move them on, hit them up, hit them up, move them on, move them on, hit them up, raw high.
Okay, let me, before we get any further, Dr. Sandler, I, I realize we asked you to stay till 1, and sometimes we go a little over. Do you have to run right out of here at 1 o'clock, or can we keep you for an extra five minutes? I'd be happy to stay with you guys for a while. Thank you. David, same question. Same, same answer. Excellent. Thank you, gentlemen. Okay, then what we'd like to do is go to our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, uh, Dr. Wow for the uh, Dr. Sandler, so you know, he's a certified industrial hygienist. His PhD is in occupational and environmental health, and he's always kind enough to listen to the show here and then come on with some comments and possibly a question at the end. So, Dieter, um, let's see if we got anything from you this week. I'm sure you've got a list of them, but let's try and keep it with, within a couple minutes. I will try to do it in a few uh, uh, minutes. And uh, I, I'm so glad to hear it again. And it was mentioned several times that dose response um, uh, relationship, and which is still the gold standard for anything that has to, something to do with toxicology. And I'm well aware of the fact, uh, listening to Dr. Schumacher, I don't know whether that was last, no, two weeks ago or whatever, he can't come up with the dose response because he's working with humans. We can't, we can't get that over there. We can do that in animals, and from there we can extrapolate. And we have done quite well, by the way. We have made mistakes, um, but that is all right. And, and that can happen. Uh, nothing is 100%. But uh, the other thing was also, yeah, the big question is, what is the exposure? What is the exposure, my exposure to lead? in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s, and now. It's tough. It's, incre it's, it, it's tough. It's impossible to measure that. You can have an estimate, which is very interesting. Uh, the other thing is, and uh, there I got, I, uh, I read the articles years ago uh, that came out, the epidemiology, the, the studies on smoking and bad effects on the lung. And the beauty of that epidemiological study is that there are millions of people who smoke billions of cigarettes. I mean, an epidemiologist just loves that. <laughs> <laughs> and a... we know, and we kind of know the exposure. I smoke one pack, I smoke two packs, I smoke three packs, I smoke one cigarette. The one interesting thing is, uh, cigarettes would not have gotten a bad name if every smoker would smoke about two cigarettes a day, one after breakfast and one after dinner. The dose-response curve for one or two cigarettes a day is virtually background, which is incredibly interesting. And of course, I mean, if it were so terribly bad, then we would have you know, a, a trucks going around town picking up the dead bodies of smokers <laughs> whom we can't bury anymore. So, I mean, it's uh, it, it, th that was interesting to me. Right. And uh, before I hang up, um, congratulations to Andy again. I know Andy very well, and he <laughs> likes uh, like his show because he's very much interested in lead. And uh, uh, Andy and I um, uh, are working together for many years. And I don't give him the answers. I don't know the answers. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know the question until anybody else does. Right? Dr. Wild, thanks as always. We always appreciate you joining us, and I'm sure we'll talk after the show.
Sure. Before we uh, round up, I've got one more question here, then Cliff has one, and then uh, we'll ask our, our guests if they have anything they'd like to add. Uh, I'd like to get one to uh, Dr. Sandler. Are there any other indoor air quality issues that have kind of gone un, uh, under-reported, under-evaluated uh, because of the fact that there's so much emphasis now on dampness and mold? Uh, I think that's a very important question. I'm glad you asked that. Uh, there's Over the years, indoor quality has sort of morphed from concern about comfort issues such as humidity, temperature, uh, fresh air supply, to issues of chemical constituents in the air, to now issues concerning uh, microbiologics. Uh, it, it sort of seems like it's following patterns that are not necessarily based on scientific interests, but are based on popular beliefs or concerns. And that I, I think, for example, one of the things we always want to make sure is that we're, we have adequately accounted for what we call confounding variables. Uh, if you do a symptom survey of, in, of individuals in a building, you know, especially a clo enclosed or, or closed space type of environment, you'll find people with symptoms, just like you'll find people with symptoms all over the place. And, and one of the areas that hasn't been looked at is, what about the stress within a specific building? Are people concerned about particular odors? Are people concerned that they're being exposed? Do people have jobs that are creating a lot of stress? And how does that, those stress or psychosocial factors, if you will, uh, impact the reporting and uh, and appearance of, of symptoms, especially that might be attributed to chemicals or microbiologics. Well, now would be a great time to look at that. I'll bet there's a lot of stress within a lot of buildings right now. People are very concerned with this economy. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you for that. And then, Cliff, I know you had one more for David. Yeah, I have one then... for David. Uh, David, uh, what's your view from 35,000 feet, I guess, of the uh, U.S. Green Building Council um, class action suit? Well, well, I did read the complaint, and it is a it's a it's it's fashioned as a class action. It makes a. Uh, claims that the uh, U.S. Green Building basically hasn't uh, done what it's uh, claimed uh, to to be there to do, and uh, it's it's going to be an interesting controversy. I, I I remember writing an article in the IE Connection a couple of years ago on this whole green building phenomenon and how it is going to spawn litigation because what happens in the green setting is that you basically have uh, certifications. You have to meet certain requirements, and it's supposed to perform in a certain way. And if it's uh, like anything else, false advertising, if you, you, you're not getting what uh, was represented as having um, um, being delivered, then you have a potential lawsuit. So I can't really comment on the specific facts of uh, you know whether this is a valid claim or not. It's a, It's an interesting claim. And, uh, you know, these things have a way of uh, uh, shedding some light on, on issues. Uh, it's just it's hard to know right now. I can tell you that one of the things that um, I've seen in, in litigation is, is how the, the litigation field uh, sort of messes up the marketplace. I think we're seeing it in the lead poisoning area where there's a lot of public money being focused in on lead. 
when there are a lot of other health issues that uh, uh, may may be um, more deserving of money. Uh, and and with that, I, I'd like to point out an article. Many of you may follow this uh, journal called Environmental Health Perspectives. And there was an article in June of 2007 by a number of authors, including David Jacobs, who's with the uh, National Center for Healthy Housing, on improving indoor environmental quality from a public health perspective, where they looked at a whole bunch of different things, not just the ones that might get the person in the house some money if they sued for them. And I think from from that perspective, it's it's uh, not necessarily the the so-called bad actors that get the publicity that are the ones that need the attention. Uh, it, you've got to look at it from a more cost-benefit perspective, not just will this uh, lead poisoning claim bring some money to the the occupant. It's it's more important to look at what what money can be spent and what benefit can be had from the spending of that public money. All right. Before we go, we always like to give our guests the last word. Dr. Sandler, is there anything we missed or anything you would like to add be, for our listeners before we sign off for the day? Yeah, a couple of things I'd like to, to point out or just very briefly. And one is in regards to Dr. Shoemaker's research committee report that, it's, that his, quote, uh, newly described syndrome, the chronic inflammatory response syndrome, is an immunologically based problem. I, I do note that, for example, that there are a lot of people living with HIV and AIDS who have severe immunodeficient syndromes, and yet I've yet to see a single uh, recommendation come out of the National Institutes of Health or the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention saying that sh- they shouldn't be living in the Gulf Coast because of the huge amounts of molds that are there and whether, in fact, somebody with an already impaired immune system would be at increased risk of mold-related effects. I just don't see it. The second piece is that I think we've now had an experiment going on, unfortunately not by design, in New Orleans where there was a tremendous amount of mold that was growing in there for many years, and a lot of people who have gone down there and done rehabilitation, remediation, including a, a, a group of NIOSHers, my old outfit, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, and the preliminary reports are not showing that these people are developing mold-related problems, even though clearly they've been exposed to much higher levels of mold than the average individual in a, quote, mold-contaminated home is. All right. Well, thank you for that. And can you let listeners know about your uh, website? I believe it's SOMA. Yes. Uh, we're an occupational environmental health, hygiene, toxicology, ergonomics firm that works with government agencies and various uh, groups throughout the country uh, in assuring people ha- are safe and healthy. And our website is www.selmaonline.com. Thanks so much, and thanks for joining us. David, before we go, any final comments, things you'd like to add? I did that just a minute ago. Oh, I'm sorry. When I'm... I, when I, no, that's okay. When I talked about the, the looking at the big picture and, and not just the... the, the uh, I suppose you could call it a litigant as opposed to a toxicant. And the litigants tend to get uh, press, and the toxicants uh, tend to get some scientific research. The, the um, uh, litigants are, are, are the things we deal with all the time. And I guess the, 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 the corollary to my, my comment would be this. From a scientific perspective, what, what we see a lot, and it's particularly pervasive now that we have the Internet going, is 
uh, anecdotal reports of exposures and effects that get built upon one another over and over. So you have, oh, I felt bad after I was with that mold. That mold must have caused me to feel badly. Um, and, you, you know, somebody posts that on the Internet 10 times and 20 times, and then it gets going around and around. And, um, you know, people think that uh, this, this is how they define their illness and the cause of their illness, and they're really doing themselves a disservice because there could be a better, clearer explanation with uh, some sort of uh, an actual cure for the symptoms that they're suffering as opposed to the, the, the speculation that they're picking up on the Internet and then assuming it's true because they've heard it several different times. And could you give us the website for the Governor Law Firm? www.governo.com. Thank you so much. We appreciate David Governo and also Dr. Howard Sandler for joining us this week. We appreciate you staying over, and thanks so much for a great show. Next week, we will have the IICRC president, Mr. Patrick Winters, joining us here on IAQ Radio. Before I go, I also want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. fun, Joe. It's a great show today. Great show. Of course, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, And at the controls, Austin Powers Novak. But most importantly, you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Thanks again. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. Call recording has been completed.